what my sponsor said to me, he just said, what are you willing to do to stay sober? And then before I could even answer, he retorted, if the answer isn't anything, then there's nothing I can't, there's nothing I can do for you. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the voice of Mr. Ryan that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. Keep in mind, we will have listener feedback at the end of this episode. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Jim, Jenna, and Jonathan. Jim, Jenna, and Jonathan went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab, and made a contribution. Thank you so much, Jim, Jenna, and Jonathan, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. And if I am not mistaken, I'm not an English major, but I believe that is called an alliteration when you have three J's like that or three any letters like that in a row. But nonetheless, nobody called in for an English lesson or lack of an English lesson or for wrong information in regards to grammar. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, thank you, Jim, Jenna, and Jonathan. Hey, did you all listen to that last episode, episode number 69, called There is a Solution with Gary Kay? Uh, If you didn't catch that one, I highly recommend that you go back one episode here and listen to it. Um, As Cassandra mentions in listener feedback at the end of the episode here, uh, Gary is full of wisdom and straightforward old school recovery. Uh, You do not want to miss Gary. So, But I'm thrilled to have Ryan on Sober Speak today. In my opinion, what makes Ryan so special is that he is completely vulnerable and honest. And you will see what I mean as you listen to the episode regarding that. Um, And it reminded me of page 124 in the big book. And let me get this here. I actually have an actual physical book in front of me here. On page 124, this is in the family afterwards of uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Let me read that again. I think that's so important, especially for those of you who may be in the midst of your darkness right now. Page 124 again, it says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death, and misery for them. And I don't know whether you're in the middle of your darkness right now, or you've got past that, and you're able to use that dark past for others, but I think that is a great passage from the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
All right, everybody, keep in mind, I so would appreciate you supporting the show by sharing this, either this episode or the podcast as a whole with two or three family members. As I've mentioned before, I really want these guests to be heard, and it means the world to me that they come in and pour out their heart for us. And uh, if you could share this with somebody, I sure would appreciate it. Um, We do have a secret Facebook group. Uh, Keep in mind that it is different than the Sober Speak Facebook group uh, or the Sober Speak Facebook page. In order to get into the group, you have to be invited by somebody in it already, or you send me your email to john at soberspeak.com and I can add you to the uh, secret Facebook group. Uh, There are so many uh, amazing like-minded friends of Bill W. and, and uh, uh, Al-Anon and other 12-step programs. Uh, I'm looking in here right now. I see things like there are questions and there's support and there's a lot of comments and there are questions like, uh, what's your favorite recovery quote and why? Uh, what's your favorite drinking song and why? What's your favorite moment with your sponsor? Uh, there, there are quotes of the day that are inside the group. Uh, I, I got to admit, most of the quotes are created by Miss Cassandra, and I'm so thankful that she does that. Um, Jonathan actually a- uh, posted a picture of the golf course where he actually listens to Sober Speak, and I thought that was absolutely fantastic. So I want to say one more thing before I move on here, and that is, you know, I had a little bit of a uh, a rough week. It was up and down for many different reasons, you know, and I know that everybody out there has ups and downs. And one of the things, though, that I was actually struggling with though, here over the past week is, you know, I was struggling with this particular podcast, and I've mentioned to you guys before that, you know, Sometimes I wonder about what the right thing to do about it is. And there are so many little imperfections that most of you probably don't even notice, but I notice and I know I can make it right, but it just comes down to time and effort. And um, and I sent that particular concern of mine out to my friend, uh, Buddy C. Buddy C is the one who has his own podcast and is called The Tao of Our Understanding. And Buddy wrote me back with a fantastic email, and I just wanted to read it to you guys. He says, John, you were you are a perfectionist like myself. And what he's referring to is that I get caught up on putting these things out when they're not perfect. But he said, all I have to do is do the work and let it go, unquote. With all of this, I know my words or it being perfectly delivered is not what changes lives. It is the God within my experience that I share that does it. And when and if they are ready, they are ready. So that, for whatever reason, just kind of let my shoulders down. I know none of you guys complain. Uh, the only thing I ever get to complain about is me laughing too much on the programs, and I get it. But that that really helped me, and I just want to kind of give a, a public shout out to Mr. Buddy. And now we are on to Mr. Ryan. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here on Sober Speak with Mr. Ryan. Ryan, uh, boy, well, there's so many questions I have for you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Really, been looking forward to it. Uh, but first of all, I mean, this is going to be gonna, this is going to become very apparent as we walk through this. But Ryan has a story of uh, notoriety, if you will. Uh, you know, it's just like all of us, but uh, there's some notoriety involved with this. And uh, so, Ryan, I am a, uh, I'm a football fan. And so I know your basic story, but there are people that are listening to this uh, outside of the United States or or people who are not football fans, and they're not going to know a whole lot about your story. So why don't we start out by having you uh, introduce yourself, uh, give your sobriety date, and just some general background on yourself, okay? You bet. My name's uh, Ryan Lee. I am so, my sober date is April 1st. 2012. It's the most elaborate April Fool's joke ever. <laughs> um, I, I grew up uh, playing sports. Uh, it allowed for me 
for it allowed me for uh, to have a lot of things, a lot of entitlement, things of that nature. And I was lucky enough to play in in college as well as professionally for a few years. And upon my retirement, you know, my addiction took over, and it would be something I battled for probably eight years. It would even take me to uh, a prison cell, literally. What I learned in there, individual who I met in there who became essentially a guardian angel for me, changed my life. And when I got out, there was a shift that had to happen or nothing would change. And here we are four and a half years later with what you may consider the life of my dreams because of the choices and paths I chose to take once getting out. So that's kind of the overall bullet points to it. I'm sure we'll go into more depth here as we as we go on. You know, and I know you grew up in Montana, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, Great Falls. And I, uh, this is just kind of a weird side note for me. There are two states within the continental United States that I have not visited uh, just because I travel a lot with business. And one of them is Montana. Uh, and one of them is uh, South Dakota. So I'm hoping to get there someday soon. So why don't you talk a little bit about growing up in Man- Montana and what it was like for you as a kid, your family life, et cetera? Well, you could knock it out on one trip because they're right next to each other. You could go through the Black Hills, see Mount Rushmore, yep. go right into Montana, go see Glacier National Park as well as Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park. It was, uh, I, don't believe, I don't believe you're a product of your environment. Um, if that were the case, I would have never ended up in a prison cell. I, I, I was raised by two amazing parents. My father was a two-tour Vietnam veteran, raised three boys, owned his own business, high character and integrity, um, loving extended family and a, and a supportive community. So it was very middle class, very white, privileged. I was never marginalized. In fact, I was rather placed on a pedestal pretty early. Because of your athletic prowess? Right. Yeah. My my mom could never really understand why everybody wanted to know about her son or was talking about her son. And I I figured out pretty early that, you know, consequences weren't necessarily the same for me because I I could perform well on a basketball court or a baseball diamond or the football field. And I liked that. And the pedestal grew higher and higher. And I'm the only Montanan ever to be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. So... There are more first-round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of Montana <laughs> ever. So there's a uniqueness there, and I trailblazed something, and I didn't necessarily care about what anybody else thought because I was going to get out of that small town, and I was going to be a professional athlete. That's just how it was going to be. My hometown and home state is pretty introverted, right? They're kind of like hardworking and conservative and not let the, not let the spotlight shine on you, but, but just put your head down and go about your business. And I just, I simply wasn't that guy. And I rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I was super competitive. I, I tell people all the time I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug because in competition was that drug for me. I had to win at everything and I was gonna. My hometown and I did not get along and we still don't. I'm still pretty despised in my hometown. How come? Do you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I victimized the whole city. You know, i I stole from them. I burglarized their homes. I also was the, you know, the first round draft pick that they always wanted. They'd always wanted a first round draft. They just got me instead. And that wasn't, that wasn't the guy they wanted in there. Um, The only difference was that they were mostly adults. Right. And I was a kid. Um, I got defensive and I got resentful and I went back at them, you know, especially when I turned, turned professional and, and got paid and, got that notoriety, you know, I kind of let them have it and said, I told you so, you guys are all idiots type of mentality, mm-hmm. you know, an addict, an addict mentality. And, uh, and that's how I went about things. And so it's always been pretty difficult. So it's a pretty toxic environment for me. Um, I don't go back much and that's okay. I mean, you know, I've, I've tried to make amends through my process. Um, you can't control what others do with those. Um, and, and you try to, uh, be part of the solution and move on. So one, when we were talking earlier this week, you had mentioned that uh, uh, one of the things that you were excited about is that you just gotten off parole, correct? <laughs> yeah. And why, why was that uh, exciting? I believe it's because, well, I guess for several reasons, but travel is one of them. Talk about that a little bit. 
Well, I, I didn't think I was, was supposed to get off parole until March 30th because that was I was arrested March 30th, woke up in prison the next day, April 1st, which is my sobriety date. So I assumed that seven years later was that date, but apparently the way the calendars work and, and the days, whatever, my, my parole officer called me on January 8th and said, tomorrow you're going to be released from supervision. So it was a, a, an amazingly pleasant surprise. Um, immediately booked a trip to Bali with my fiance. Uh, and so we're, we're looking forward to that trip and, uh, and traveling, you know, being on supervision is not difficult if you're doing the right thing. It's, it's, it's really easy. Um, you show up, you be accountable. In fact, there's accountability, um, measure there with, with a PO who still shows up and drug tests you and even seven years later. I mean, there's just a, a sense of accountability that comes with it, which has been, which has been good. But I'm also pleased that I, I worked really hard to, to stay the course and, and get through this process too as well. So I read a quote from you once. You said something like, uh, uh, you, you dreamed of playing football in the NFL, going 15 to 20 years, riding off into the sunset, uh, and then doing some Old Spice commercials, which I absolutely loved. But So I guess the first part of that came true, but the second part of it did not. Let, let's go into that. So when did you start to realize that drugs and or alcohol were an issue? What was it conscious for you at least? Um, probably three months after I'd retired from the NFL, I abused medication for the first time. I was never a drinker. Um, I would binge drink in college just to fit in with everybody else, continue the persona of big man on campus and, and, and to talk to be an inhibited, uninhibited to talk to pretty girls and stuff like that. So, I mean, I knew that when I drank, I drank to excess. It just wasn't that often. And I had never abused a drug. The only drug I'd ever taken in my life was, was Vicodin after surgeries. So it's about three months after I'd retired from the NFL and I was in Vegas for a fight. And the critics have, have told me as the biggest bust in history of the NFL. So I, I thought when I retired that I could just walk away and just go live a normal life or disappear, essentially. That's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to disappear, but it just doesn't happen. Every April, my name comes up uh, when they talk about people who struggle and stuff like that. And it's just, it's constantly reminded. And uh, you mean every April when the NFL draft comes around? Is that what right? You're- right. When the NFL draft is, but it's, you know, NFL football is, is year round now. It doesn't, it doesn't end. There's no off season, essentially. And we were in Vegas for a fight and the MC was announcing celebrities in the audience and they announced Tiger Woods and Charles Barkley in the crowd just applauded and cheered and, and the announcer announced my name and the whole MGM grand just just booed and hissed. And this is the perfect example of, of, of being a drug addict long before I ever took a drug. I, my drug addict mind heard, not only are you uh, this terrible football player, Ryan, but you're what my ears heard that night and what my brain heard was that you're this awful person. And when we were at a party afterwards where there were Hall of Famers and Super Bowl champs where I always felt judged and less than because of my, what I considered a failure of a career, an acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin. And this would be the first time that I actually took it in an abusive fashion. He gave me a couple pills. I mixed it with the alcohol I was drinking and it worked. It worked just like it had worked for me after surgery when I had the physical acute pain. So explain to people who maybe are not uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict what it worked means to you. It, uh, it's a painkiller. That's what they're called. That's what it does. I, just, I wasn't in physical pain. I was in emotional pain, and it worked. I walked in and out of those parties the rest of the night, not feeling any of that, not feeling judgment, not feeling less than. I didn't feel better. I just didn't feel anything. And that's what I was searching for. I just wanted it to disappear. I didn't want anybody ever to look at me, see me, um, unless I, unless I wanted them to, because that you know the egomaniac part's still in me, just with the self-esteem issue, and uh, and it worked, and that would become the next eight years of my life, just the search for that feeling, that initial feeling, the first time, always chasing that, uh, and with opiate painkillers. You could take 30 pills and be addicted. Just one, one prescription of, of pills and you are, are addicted and you, 
you know, what it makes it feel and the dopamine that's released into your brain. And, and you're always chasing that. And that would be my life for the next eight years. Uh, at first I had just a, a ton of money to, to find my way around it and not have to go to a drug dealer, but do the wrong thing the right way and go to doctors. You know, I could walk in with x-rays and just say, Hey, I got beat up for a living. And I did, I was, there was physical pain, but it wasn't, I mean, Hey, bones had to be coming out of my body to take me off a football field. Now, if I stub my toe, it was a perfect opportunity to get painkillers because of what it was doing for me in a self-medicated fashion. I just wasn't doing it the, the healthy, positive way. I was doing it the negative and toxic way. And, that, you know, I didn't want anybody else to know that I was struggling with it. So that was eight years. How were you able to, first of all, is it just about the 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 drugs at that point or is it alcohol or is it a, a toxic combination of both and then how did you end up getting the drugs for that long it, the doctors and then when the doc, did the doctors finally catch on to that yeah the doctors finally caught, caught on you know i've probably been drunk six times in my life so you know alcohol only time alcohol was ever present was in college binge drinking and then you know with the buddies on the on the river fishing or something that wasn't that wasn't the drug of choice, though, if, if I couldn't find any opiates uh, for that day, you know, a bottle of vodka would suffice just to do exactly what it needed to do, right? And that was numb me, which is what I was searching for. It just so happened that opiates were mine. Mood-altering substances for me are all the same, regardless, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, any of those things, cutting, all that stuff is just to alter your mood because you're not comfortable with who you are and you need to be numbed out. For me, it was just Vicodin. That's what that's what worked for me. It's the only thing I knew, and I liked it. I liked how it made me feel, um, which was nothing, and you know, everything else just went to the the wayside. At first, it was doctors, of course. Doctors would prescribe. Um, I'd manipulate the situation. They'd get me prescriptions with refills and refills and refills. Ultimately, I ended up in my hometown after being indicted in Texas for doctor shopping, which is essentially going to a bunch of doctors. So I didn't know a drug dealer. Also, I didn't want anybody to know I was using, you know, the last person I wanted to have was some drug dealer knowing he was furnishing Ryan with his pill habit. I was back in my hometown. And of course, after it being big news in Texas that I was indicted and put on probation, you know, doctors wouldn't prescribe it anymore till finally I'm going to friends' homes, pretending I'm interested to in spending time with them since I hadn't seen them in years. But instead, going through their medicine cabinets, finding their pills to ultimately at the end, simply walking into people's homes on the outskirts of town of my hometown where I'm supposed to be the hero. Instead, I'm this burglar, druggy felon. Knock on the door. If no one answered, I'd open it up. Doors are never locked in Montana. And I'd say, hello, is anybody home? No one was. And then nine times out of 10, there'd be some sort of opiate painkiller in the medicine cabinet. And I'd always wonder and think when I'd find a bottle of pills that the owner had had for like six months and they'd only taken two pills. And I'd, I'd think to myself, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> you know, that for me was a three days supply and it was gone, but they're not drug addicts like I am. And, uh, and that was my life. And I wasn't a very good criminal. I got found out really quickly um, by the police locally there in my hometown. And I was arrested twice in 48 hours. After the second arrest, uh, I didn't get out. I didn't get out for 32 months, um, so almost three years. What was it like for your family during that time when you were going through that process? Just, you know, frustrating, just sad. People don't realize how outside of the addict bubble, how sick the family gets as well because there's a lot of codependency and there's enabling until they figure out and once my family figured it out by going to Al-Anon and things of that nature, how to deal with an addict family member, things shifted, right? Healthy boundaries started being put into place. And, but it was, you know, and I, but, but when you're in your full mode addiction, you're not listening to anybody. It doesn't matter. They could, want, they could want it so much for you. But if you don't want it, if you don't want sobriety and a peaceful and chaotic life, you're not going to get it, no matter how many people want it for you. That's just the bottom line. So, there has to become there has to become a, a, a an acceptance by family members on that, and you know both my brothers. One of them just you know, set a healthy healthy boundary for him. He's like, I can't, I can't deal with you like this, Ryan. I, this I we're not. I got a family of my own now. This is I can't do this. 
I'm here to support you in your recovery, but I'm not going to enable this addict behavior anymore. And he was the first. The dominoes eventually fell. For my mom and dad, it didn't finally fall until I was in prison or in jail initially, and I found a way to bond out. And I know all I know, my mom wanted me just to be safe under their roof so she could take care of me. That's just how a mother is. And the strength it took for both my parents to look me in the eye that night and say, and ask me to go turn myself back in because they knew that was the safest place probably for me. And that was the first step on their part of, you know, undoing that, that codependency and that enabling behavior. And it's been a struggle uh, since I've gotten out and gotten sober with, like it is with any family. I think they're seeing the best version of their, their son, but also there's 38 years of damaged behavior before that, that makes them instantly go to that place unless they're continually working on their, on how they deal with things too. So it's a, it's a family disease. It truly is. And it's and you don't figure that out until really when one individual goes to treatment and he gets all this work for 30, 60, 90 days. And if things hadn't, you know, if things haven't necessarily moved forward in a, in a general positive direction at home, you know, the family member who was the addict or in the addiction walks right back into the same environment and, the triggers are exactly the same for them and their muscle memory is to deal with it in however way they dealt with it their whole life. And that was definitely, that's definitely me. But the great thing about my family is they went to work too. When I was in treatment, there was family days. They were a part of it. I mean, they learned about it. Al-Anon's been huge. It really has for, for my family and understanding, you know, the illness um, and, and, and moving forward as a, as a family in that, in that way. I'm glad you mentioned Al-Anon. Yeah, I love Al-Anon uh, and how they have, uh, you know, helped help both me, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole, all, tw- all the whole 12-step community as a whole. And what a wonderful uh, piece to the puzzle that they really are. Um, okay, so you got into prison. You were there for 32 months. I know that you mentioned on the beginning of this uh, episode today that you had a uh, uh, a guardian angel. So in a brief sort of fashion, can you kind of go over those 32 months best you can? Well, this is this is the perfect example of, of, of my statement that I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug because when I was arrested, the substance that was removed from my body because I couldn't get it. I was in solitary confinement for the first 83 days I was in there. How come you were in solitary confinement? They told me it was for my safety because I was famous apparently. Didn't make any sense to me, but it was, I mean, can you imagine detoxing in the worst possible person I could be in a room with is myself in my brain and what my mind is thinking. And that's what it was for like 83 days. When I was sent away to prison then after the uh, sentencing and everything like that, Nothing changed, right? In fact, I probably got more angry, more self-loathing. It just was a proof. It just proved my theory that I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug on how I dealt with stuff, how I behaved, how I uh, I was in fear and judgment and and narcissism. All that stuff was there, regardless of of whether the substance was or not. It was just a way for me to medicate it. Nothing changed. I didn't go outside. I went outside twice in those twenty six months. Probably nothing changed. For 26 of those 32 months. So you went outside twice. Did you have the option to go outside more often? Yes, I had the option to go outside. I could go outside twice a day. I just didn't do it. I out outside. I could see the mountains I grew up in and I hunted in and I was, it just was even more depressing. And then one of the first times I went outside, a couple of the other inmates asked me to be, asked me to play some flag football with them. And I was essentially the all-time quarterback. And I, I watched the guards start surrounding to surround the football field and on the walkie talkies Leafs out here throwing the foot. It just, for me, it was so humiliating just to where I, where I'd got gotten to, right. Something happened that night when one of the individuals who came in, who was playing catch um, out there that day came in and said, Hey, today was my birthday, man. It was, this was the best birthday present I ever had. I got to play catch with an NFL quarterback. That should have made me feel good about, but I didn't hear it at the time. I still didn't hear it. You know, I, all I saw as myself as this failure and this loser. And I didn't go outside again for a year. And I went outside on the same day and then didn't go back out again until I left. My roommate was a, this is how my higher power showed up in the form of my roommate. 
And when when is this? What's the timeline on this now? How twenty six months you? probably. Yeah. Okay. Well, not not twenty six months. He became my roommate probably for the last eighteen months. But I, he just watched me for probably the first year of our existence, just bury my head in the sand. And finally, he felt confident enough or to confront me and tell me exactly that that I had my head buried in the sand and how I didn't understand the value that I had not only for the men in there but for when I got out because. Said Ryan, you're going to get out at some point. And uh, he was a Ra- he was an Iraqi Afghan war veteran, and he had done something that what a lot of people have done in their lifetime, and that's drive drunk. Just so happened he would kill somebody that night. He's 23 at the time, and he'd be sentenced to a a long time in prison. And this had been eight years later, and I watched him over that span make amends for what he had done and work to try to be better. You know, he was taking his GEDs, and he was taking his ACTs and wanted to get out and use his GI Bill uh, to go to engineering school. And I just looked at him like he was nuts because didn't he see who, who we were? We were exactly these, we were these, we had no life ahead of us is the way I looked at things. We were losers. And he just, he suggested that day that we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. And I've had many of those come to Jesus moments in my lifetime. And I just, literally flipped the bird to him, whether it was coaches and family members and people who wanted to help, who unconditionally loved me. For whatever reason, probably because this, the substance had been out of my brain at least long enough, I agreed to go. I still fought it. I remember walking down the hallway in that red jumpsuit, like metaphorically kicking rocks like a child, thinking this is stupid. This isn't going to help you know, doesn't he know how important I am type of mentality. And then I walked in and then there was these 50 year old men in a place where you're not supposed to show vulnerability at all prison you, at all. And here they were telling me that they, A, couldn't read at 50 years old. B, could I help them? So they were surrendering and then they were willing to accept help, which was crazy. I'd never seen that. I thought that was weakness. And before I knew it, I was coming back day after day and I was sleeping better and I was more personable and um, I realized that I was being of service to a human being for the first time in my life. And that's the way it went. Um, I continued to do that. I became the TA for the substance abuse counselor in there. No one was watching this happen. There was no media. This wasn't about brand. No one knew this was going on. This was just, this was an inside job totally. And I knew when I got out, that it was going to have to be the foundation of who I was. Otherwise, nothing changes. I would have gone right back to doing what I'd always done and probably ended up dead or in, or in prison again. And so when I walked out of that prison, December 3rd, 2014, mom and dad picked me up and that was the mindset. I had no idea what was going to happen. Zero. I had zero idea. I just, I had hope and I didn't know where I'd gotten that hope from. I do now, of course, because of the things I was doing there those last six months. Uh, and being a service to others, that's what gave me the hope. And it just, it would just became a rolling stone gathering moss and continued to go and go and go. And now here we are, you know, about four and a half years later and, you know, literally, literally the life of my dreams or the real life of my dreams. I used to think the life of my dreams was <laughs> playing in the NFL and winning Super Bowls and riding off into the sunset and doing Old Spice commercials, like you said. <laughs> and that is not, that's not real life. We will be continuing our conversation with Ryan in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at soberspeak.com. And there you will find our back catalog of episodes. You can also find the donate button on our website. Uh, if the spirit moves you to do such, you can use it. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. We are a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay, now back to Mr. Ryan. So, first of all, I want to say this, as you were, as you were sharing that story there, uh, and you said you're living the life of your dreams now, um, I've always said, uh, you know, God's been real good to me 
he let hardly anything work out the way I had it planned. And that's what I see in your story. And I'm also curious about that. The the gentleman who, you know, kind of brought you the message or whatever and had you go down and read with the other prisoners or try to teach people how to read in prison. Is he, do you, are you still in contact with him? Yeah, I'm actually going to see him here in a couple of weeks. Um, he got out about a month after me. Is in Nashville. He is an engineering student at Limscombe University and uh, has a family of his own now as well. And, you know, it turned, like I said before, it turned out he was, he was a guardian angel of sorts for me. One I didn't know I needed, of course, but really blessed to have. And what's funny about our story is that there were 88 of us on that cell block, 86 of which have either gotten out in our back or never gotten out. We're the only two. It just shows that we're, we're the exception to the rule. The rule is you go to prison, you get out, you go back. You're a drug addict, you go to treatment, you get out, you relapse, you die. That's, that's, those are usually the rule. The exception are the ones that surrender and accept help. And uh, I'm so grateful for, for him uh, and for what it presented and gave me and where I'm at right now. So, and you've alluded to this already, but I just want to throw this out as a question. And that is, why do you continue? Let me rephrase it. Let me put it this way. When we talked earlier in the week, you said that this, the recovery message is kind of the foundation of everything else that you do. Why do you continue to tell this message? And why is this the foundation, if you will? Well, for me, my recovery has to be the foundation because if it's a selfish, it's an unselfish program and a very selfish program at the same time, because you do everything you have to do in it is about you loving yourself, which allows you to go out into the world and be, be the, the best human being you can. And, uh, that's why it's the foundation. Now, the reason why I continue to go out, I, I didn't initially want to do that. Right. Um, my sponsor really just, you know, is adamant about the 12 step. And he's, he's been 30, 33 years sober and he's taught me so much. He's the first that actually took me through the entirety of the 12 steps. And, and where did and, you meet this gentleman? It's, it's amazing. At a meeting, right? at an AA, at an AA meeting. Okay. Um, I had gone up and asked, uh, who do I talk to about celebrating my three-year cake? Because I had just gotten out of prison. I was still in treatment. And, um, but I was about to take my three-year cake. You managed to avoid, wow, you managed to avoid um, drugs while you were in the prison system. I, I'm sure it's uh, available. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. You know, I, I, it was the perfect opportunity. It's what I did out on the outside. I got drugs. I sat at home and watched movies and just voided out. It was the perfect place and opportunity. I don't know why I didn't. I can't tell you. There was some sort of hand on me through that process because it was the perfect opportunity. I had a little 13-inch flat screen at the end of my bed, 45 channels. I was depressed. I was, it was all of it. And I just didn't. Hmm. I don't know why. I, I don't have an answer for you because it was, it was rampant. You know, the most smuggled in and abused drug in prison is Suboxone, and, uh, which I think is crazy because on the outside, it's supposedly used as a medication to help people get off opiates, which... I've never really found how that's works. So you treat a narcotic with another narcotic, but I digress on that. Um, <laughs> okay. So you said you were in a, so you, you talked to your sponsor, you asked him about the, uh, the three year cake and. Yeah. I just asked him how somebody signs up for the cake and he asked what I was doing there. And, and if, and if I was up from out of town and if I had a temporary sponsor and I told him I didn't and he, he volunteered, I mean, it was the perfect example of, of 12 stepping, right? Just, you know, after had had a spiritual, you know, spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, you carry your message to other alcoholics and addicts out there. And that's exactly what he was doing. And before I knew it, we got, had gone through all the steps. It, you know, it took us a year, definitely. And ongoing, of course, amends happen with some that you'll never, never thought that would be a viable option to have amends. And all of a sudden they show up right in your, right in your face and you're, you're given the opportunity. So you're, that's always ongoing. Um, in 10, 11, and 12 are just, you know, you're just repeating those over and over and over again on a daily basis. So what was your relationship with God or what sort of spiritual, did you have any sort of spiritual or, or religious background or was this all new to you? My religious background um, was growing up in Catholicism. 
you know, made to go to church, made to go to confirmation, made to be an altar boy, made to go stand up, kneel down, stand up, kneel down, um, you know, forced to it, essentially. I mean, I mean, of course, I'm well-versed in Catholicism, but there was a joke in college that Sports Illustrated ran that went, what's the difference between God and Ryan Leaf? And the punchline is that God doesn't think he's Ryan Leaf. <laughs> and it, I did. I thought that was hilarious too, right? Um, which is, is, is silly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm big in spirituality in that I mean, I don't know what my higher power is. I just know there is one and I'm not it. And that's good enough, right? I find things that are spiritual in readings and something my sponsor says, the community that's been built, the things I see that happen around me, nature is so my big thing is spirituality and understanding that I have a higher power. I don't, I don't necessarily go to any type of religion. I just kind of, I just kind of steal all the best parts of all the religions and utilize them for my, for my well being. is the way I go about it. Well, talk about your swim through the steps, maybe the first time, uh, you know, with your sponsor and you know what, what that brought up. And also if you have any, uh, it, it sounds like you probably had some amends that you had to go back and make. And I'm curious to how those went. People always assume, you know, steps four and five are the hardest when they first get into it just because of the hardest steps for me are six and seven. To actually look for some omnip- uh, omnipotent being to take away these defects of character. I mean, you really have to surrender in six and seven. I mean, you really do. You hope you, you've done that in one, two, three, but sometimes you get through those pretty quickly because you just, you know, you know how your life's unmanageable and that that you need help and you're, you're going to ask for somebody to take that, you know, help you guide you through it. But six and seven are really like, after you write down all these honest things and tell somebody about them, you then have to give them away for somebody else to deal with. And I'm like, no, I control everything. I'll, those were the hardest ones for me, six and seven. Nine, of course, is difficult just because some of the situations you're in are difficult because these are people you harmed. Um, and some of them weren't going to go the way you wanted them to, but that, this has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with the other person. And that's my sponsor always helped guide me through that. And, and when there were times that it would do more harm to them, of course he found living amends for me to, to find ways to, to do it that way. So he's been a, a great guide through all of this. And then when I got, and then when I started sponsoring, when I started sponsoring young men or, or men, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a great teacher that helped me go through it. Similarly, my schedule doesn't, promote a lot of time with sponsees because I'm on the road so much and and he my sponsor's been great so my grand I guess he's considered the grand sponsor he's been great for some of my sponsees to deal with things you know on the ground when I'm you know jetting around and in, in, in outside of Los Angeles which has been really helpful for me and especially the the, the young men that I've been working so with. you live in Southern California now right Yes, in Los Angeles. You know, I want to go back in time or just because I had read some things about this before, not to get too morose or whatever, but uh, I think that people will be able to re- relate to this. But I believe you had a at least one suicide attempt there within the middle of this. Is that correct? Yeah, it was uh, after I was arrested the first time, I bonded out. And then I thought my only way out of any of this was was death. I needed to be high or dead. There wasn't a third direction for me. And when... I had been arrested. They had confiscated all my pills and I just, I couldn't figure it out. So I literally looked up ways to kill yourself on Google and I tried to uh, take a knife to my, my left wrist. I still have the scar here and it didn't take. I immediately drove to my parents' house and was just going to park in the garage and do it that way. They weren't supposed to be there. They were supposed to be taking care of my grandparents because again, their eldest grandson had humiliated the family. Because of course, when I get arrested, it's national news. It's on the bottom of sports center and cnn and it just is just another mess up um, by the uh, biggest bust in nfl history that's just kind of how it how it plays and uh but they were home and so i pulled a u-turn and went out and found a home that i knew had pills in it before went and got them you know there's all this shame and guilt about the things i had to do to be to, to feed my habit but as soon as they were in my hand you know the ends justified the means no matter what and on my way out, they, uh, the family pulled up in the driveway. I talked my way out of it, of course, and I, I got back home and, and I was able to take the pills so I didn't have to feel any of the stuff that was going on. That's the thing about mood-altering substances. No matter what's going on in your life, there's no consequence too great because you're not feeling any of it anyway. Of course, it wears off. And when it was starting to wear off that night, that family figured out something had happened at the house. They called the police again. The police showed up and 
in the form of my higher power in the sheriff's department and save my life because they would arrest me and this time I wouldn't get out. <laughs> and, uh, but those first 83 days, I was still, I still had those suicidal ideations, right? I was, I was thinking, I just got to find a way to bond out, get out, just run until the wheels fall off and, and, and die. I mean, that's what my mindset was for, for quite a while. I can't believe that's where I was and how I was thinking, but I have to remember and understand that, especially when I'm working with other individuals and hearing about people's stories and having empathy around that because I was right there. I know that, that you have a, uh, you have a son and you have a fiance that you talked about on the beginning of this uh, episode. Uh, talk to us a little bit about them and uh, what that's meant to you in your life and how it has grounded you. Well, I was still in inpatient. I was about 80 days into my 90-day stay there in inpatient after getting out of prison. And I, my brother was working on a project, and he invited me up to go watch him direct it and, uh, and work that day. And I remember saying, hey, you know, I don't have enough money to pay for gas to get up there. So I, I, he's like, come up and watch your brother work. I'll pay for your gas. So I went up. And I watched, and uh, this woman wor- wor- uh, this woman walked on set, and she was acting in a role on the uh, on the program. And I just she was just was this tall, beautiful brunette, um, and I immediately was. I mean, when you see a woman who's like six one, six foot, you know that she, you know those women are looking for tall men because there aren't many of them out there. And I'm six seven, so I'm like, okay, this I, at least I got that going for me. But like within 15 minutes of of talking with her, you know, I had to, you know, I did, I told her, you know, Hey, I, so I just got out of prison. I mean, I have to do that stuff because people can Google me. You just Google me and you see mugshots and and, and things like that. So I, I figured that you get all that stuff out there and be as transparent and vulnerable. It was actually the best thing I could have done because, uh, at our engagement dinner, my little brother asked her, you know, what was it finally that made you know that Ryan was the one. And, and she just, she said something that I'd never heard in my life. She said, I was the most honest man she'd ever met. And my brother just fell on the floor laughing because that's not how I'm defined in my family or anywhere really. Right. She was getting to experience this whole new version of Ryan. The night I proposed 10, 12 days later or whatever it was, 15 days later, we found out we were pregnant and then that we were having a boy down the line and he's 16 months old right now. And it's just the best thing that uh, I've ever done. It's pretty amazing to see what, not only what women can do by making a baby, but then what we get to do as a partner. And there's no way I can accomplish any of this if I'm not sober, right? None of it. I'm not present. I'm not there. Um, The moment you hold them in your hands, there's a selfless wave that, the selflessness wave that just kind of rolls over the top of you. And you know that everything you do from that point forward is going to be about them, protecting them, providing for them, giving them the best possible um, life that you can, but understanding still at the same time that that young man's going to make choices of his own down the line, no matter how educated I, no matter what I tell him or what I do, because my parents were amazing down to earth, amazing people. You know, I made the choices. I'm a few years ahead of you, but I completely understand. Uh, and once again, it comes back to uh, God's been good to me. He let hardly anything work out the way I had it planned because I did not have a, a marriage and or kids on my radar. And now I'm going, wow, why did I wait so long, right? What would you say is the best piece of counsel that you have been provided since getting sober? Does anything come to mind? What my sponsor said to me, he just said, what are you willing to do to stay sober? And then before I could even answer, he retorted, if the answer isn't anything, then there's nothing I can't, there's nothing I can do for you. And that's the way I go into anybody else. I ask them, what are you willing to do to have this peaceful, unchaotic life? Because neither one of those things existed, right? I, I had no peace. I created chaos. And the answer is to surrender, but then accept. A lot of times people will come and ask for the help, right? They'll come and ask for help, but then you lay out what the plan looks like of, for the help. And they go, you know, I, I, I got, I got this. And I'm just like, the acceptance part is a huge piece of it. Accepting the help. Do you think I wanted to accept the help from the sheriff's department? No, I acquiesced to that finally and just 
surrendered un, unwittingly. But uh, that's those are the two major questions that that are asked at the beginning, and then holding them accountable when they when they don't. Right? You know, we got something planned. You were supposed to be here then. They were supposed to call you then. You you can't just let it slide with them. If you're their if you're their accountability partner, you have to be holding them accountable. No one did that for me. Those who did, I pushed them out of my life. And if they want to push me out of their life, that's fine. My sponsor said this, and I, because I used to take it really personally when a sponsee would disappear, stop after the third step, things like that. He said, he he looked at me and said, once we find this peace and this surrender, Ryan, we become a lighthouse of sorts. And you don't see lighthouses running around the harbor looking for boats, right? You, you build a foundation in the rocks and shine a light on the darkness. And those boats that are being wrapped around the rocks and the, the waves, they come to a safe harbor and that's up to them. You cannot, you cannot control what they do with your message. It's entirely up to them at that point. Very well put. So one more question and then we'll uh, kind of uh, wrap it up here and let's see if there's anything you want to say before we end. And that is, what is something that people may not know about you? Uh, you know, I know you're kind of a, an open book and there's all sorts of things out there. All you got to do is Google your name. But what is something people may not know about you that may be sort of interesting? Like just a, um, just a movie hound. I love movies. And a lot back in the day when I use, I'd take a bunch of pills and go see movies and just veg out all day and just disappear. And I really had to re-practice and relearn because I was always fearful that I will never be able to go see the movies and enjoy that again, to sit in the theater and not be high. And so when I was in treatment, some of our outings were to, to see to a movie theater, to see films and to do it sober was new and it was practice. And now I'm, I, I just really enjoy film and I'll go by myself in the afternoon if I have the afternoon off um, and I just kind of want to get away and enjoy something and not have to think about all the things that are going on in my life that I can just kind of disappear without having to do it with the substance, but just in the, in the art and, and in LA, there's always new showings of independent films and, and great other films and things like that. So I've really enjoyed that. I don't think a lot of people know that kind of what a, you know, big time movie buff. I, I am. Um, it's a super. Yeah. You know, I'm not a big time movie buff, but my wife convinced me for a recent anniversary to go, uh, to sit down and watch a movie from back then. And I actually, we saw the, uh, the queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. And I absolutely loved it. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen it. Um, I probably, you know, I, I, I become a critic of course. And I'm like, it was the music and the acting was great, but I was like, it was a PG-13, so they really couldn't dive into the whole HIV epidemic and how it happened. And and I get it. I guess it was more of a biography than trying to teach people, too. But um, he was such a important figure in that in that world, too, because of of the sac- of his passing and everything like that. So, but I thought it was Remy Malik is is an amazing actor, and and the music was, of course, wonderful. You forget how many great Queen songs there were and how talented they were. So, yeah, really enjoyed that film as well. Yeah, it was fantastic. All right. So before we uh, wrap up, is there anything that you want to make sure that you get out of here on this uh, recording that we have not talked about thus far? You know, just continue. If there's anyone out there that continues to struggle, you know, know there's a solution. If, if I can do this, anybody can do this. I, I was at the bottom of, of, of bottoms. And, uh, and if you can't afford it, um, I started a nonprofit called the Focused Intensity Foundation. You can go to focusintensity.org. Uh, what we do is we raise money for scholarships for people who can't afford substance abuse or mental health treatment. So if you're willing and want to change your life, you shouldn't be denied that because you can't afford it. And we try to help those who want to change their life. And do exactly what we ask and that's to surrender and accept the help. We find ways to, to fund it and pay for it. And that's been really a great resource for many as well as a, just really a validation of, of that service, continuing service for us. So if you're out there, reach out for help. It will be the strongest thing you ever do. It's, it's not weakness at all, but I know how hard it is. 
I hear you, brother. And uh, so the, once again, that's focusedintensityfoundation.org. Focusedintensity.org, F-O-C-U-S-E-D-I-N-T-E-N-S-I-T-Y.org. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well so folks can access it there. So, Ryan, this has just been a pleasure. I sure do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to sit down here with me and record this on Sober Speak. And uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people will benefit from it, I am very sure. So, God bless you, my friend. Hope our paths cross again soon, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. So what did you think of that? Reach out to me at john at soberspeak.com. Let me know your thoughts. I sure did enjoy spending time with Mr. Ryan. One of my favorite parts of the episode is when he relayed what his sponsor had passed on to him about lighthouses. And his sponsor, I think, said something to the effect of, we become lighthouses and you don't see lighthouses running around the harbor looking for boats. In other words, I think the sentiment is that if people want to come in and find safe harbor in the recovery programs that we offer up, we are there. If not, we wish them well and hope they can find another path that speaks to them. All right, so now on to listener feedback. Uh, maybe I do need to do a little listener feedback tune here. I'm trying to think. Is that a listener feedback tune? No, that's just me making weird noises with my tongue. But nonetheless, I digress. Jonathan, an Al-Anon member, writes in. He says, John, as an FYI, I listened to your podcast when I practice golf. I'm an avid golfer and have been since I was eight. I played in college and still compete at the amateur level today. When everything happened with my son, I was so angry. It was the first time in my life that I didn't enjoy being on the golf course. But since working my Al-Anon program, I now have some serenity and enjoy the game of golf like I did when I was a kid. And I make listening to your podcast part of my enjoyment on the practice range. God bless Jonathan. Well, I absolutely love to hear that. As you know, as many of you know, I've mentioned before, I'm always curious as to where people are listening to the episodes. And uh, I absolutely love that you wrote that in. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Philip writes in from Sweden on Instagram. And Philip says, I was just listening to the episode of David G. He is great. And the step episodes are great. I hope one day to be able to explain the program as good as David G. does it. Well, both you and I, Mr. Philip, hope for that. Uh, David is sure a dynamo. He has quite a talent. Um, Audrey writes in, oh, by the way, let me, before I uh, go on to the next one, we are going to have David on for some other steps coming up here in the near future. Uh, just don't have that scheduled yet, but we are going to have David go through all 12 of the steps. Audrey writes in and she says, hi, John, thanks for the ad to Facebook and all of your work on the podcast. I am from Northwest Arkansas, which is Walmart country. My sobriety date is November 15th of 2015. I just started sponsoring this past year, so I really enjoy the guests telling their stories of sponsorship. Also, I met my husband in the program and got married in my first year of sobriety. It's not a recommendation, but so far so good! Exclamation point. Life is great today, and even when it's not, I have help from the fellowship. Audrey. Well, Audrey up there in Walmart country, I'm glad you're listening in. I'm glad you're getting some tips on sponsorship. God bless you and your husband. Janie from Al-Anon writes in. I love that we have so many Al-Anon people writing in. She says, hello, John. My husband became sober on June 2nd, 1998. At that time, I joined Al-Anon, which taught me how to see my part in our problems. I continue in Al-Anon. However, 
I am very active in my husband's AA alumni group and on his Saturday night meetings as support in Los Alamitos, California. Hope I pronounced that correctly. We live in Long Beach. We recently had a dear friend stay with us while she tried to catch her breath and get involved in the program. She was fighting against traditional AA meetings, and I ran across your podcast while looking at another one someone had suggested. I have listened to three stories today, and I am finding them inspiring. Our friend is listening as well. Thank you. Well, thank you, Janie from Al-Anon. Appreciate you listening in to hello, say hello to all the folks out there in California. By the way, this podcast started in Texas because that's where I live. And for a long time, Texas was by far the most listened to state in the United States. But looking at the recent stats, believe it or not, California is our number one listening state. So thanks all you friends out there, friends of Bill W and other friends out there in California. We appreciate you listening in. Annette writes in and Annette says, my sobriety date is 12-6-2014. I have 35 years of experience being a functional alcoholic. I come from a family of drunks and dysfunction. At the age of 22, I got into trouble and I was a self-admitted alcoholic. I tried to stay sober, but it didn't last more than six or eight months. Can't remember exactly how long. I started drinking again and drank for a couple of decades under the radar, or so I thought. I was a prisoner to alcohol and and tired of being a chameleon. I'm sure a lot of folks can relate to that. Everything on the outside looked great. On the inside, I didn't know how to act without having alcohol in my system. I always thought fun was synonymous with drinking. More importantly, I knew that I was repeating the cycle of my alcoholism and teaching my two daughters the same thing my parents taught me, and I wanted to break the cycle. It has paid off! Exclamation point. My niece has followed me into AA. I have reconnected with two cousins as a direct result of AA. I have gotten to know myself through the program, and I kind of like me. I'm deeply involved with service. I found Sober Speak by accident. I lost my job in January through no fault of mine. They closed the facility. And on an episode of Dr. Phil on television, he literally showed the audience how to get his podcast on the cell phone, and I followed the directions. I discovered the search icon in the podcast, so I looked for AA meetings. I found one in Canterbury, New Zealand, uh, on the radio channel, and started listening. Then one day, I did another search that started with the word sober, and I found you, triple exclamation point. <laughs> So grateful that I did. All the speakers resonate with me. I get something from each and every one of them. Lately, I have been listening to the podcast when I run another addiction of mine. There you have it, Annette. Well, keep running and keep listening and keep coming back to meetings. Uh, I sure do appreciate you, Annette. Uh, Amy writes in on Instagram. She says, hi, John. I have 20 days sober after a long time in recovery, relapse with a little frowny face. But the support of your podcast has been amazing. I just wanted to tell you that I love the very recent episode with Gary Kay. What an incredibly meaning podcast. I loved what he had to say about transparency. Very good advice. Sober Speak has been a regular part of my day. I listen to the episodes over and over, and I'm telling all of my AA friends, you are doing an amazing thing. Please keep it up. Peace and love, Amy. Thank you, Amy. And Gary Kay was an incredible episode. In fact, the next comment is from Cassandra. Cassandra writes in and she says, please tell Gary Kay that I said thank you for sharing his story. So powerful and humble. Everything he says is golden, full of wisdom and straight 
straightforward, old school recovery. So Gary is the episode right before this one with Mr. Ryan. You can go back and listen to it as Gary K. uh, And he is absolutely, uh, he knocked it out of the park. I'll put it that way. Jim writes in and she and he says, Happy Monday, John, to you and Shannon. That is my bride. I have now listened to all of the Sober Speak podcasts. Thank you for the stories and insight of sobriety and experience, strength and hope. I am 60 days sober today with God's grace. I will be 61 days sober tomorrow, one day at a time. Thanks, John, from one bozo on the bus to another. (laughs) Jim is making a reference to where I have called myself several times on, oh, several of these episodes, just another bozo on the bus. And Jim, God bless you, and and congratulations on your 60 days. Um, Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm just real, I guess if you can call it proud of you, I'm proud of you, my friend. Okay, Peter writes in and Peter says, good morning. Thank you for adding me to the Facebook page. Once again, if you want to be added to that Facebook page, write me at uh, at soberspeak.com. That's the easiest way to do this. Uh, Give me your email address associated to your Facebook account and we'll get you in there. But anyway, he says, thank you for adding me to the Facebook page. I live in Connecticut. I did a 30-day treatment at Mountainside Treatment Center from July 9th to August 10th of 2018. Binge drinking was my thing. I attend four to five AA meetings a week. I am actively involved in the Mountainside Alumni Program, and I participate in their events as often as possible. My biggest struggle has been finding a sponsor. Struggling, I'm really struggling with trust. Looking forward to being um, part of the Facebook page. Regards, Peter. Well, you know, Peter, I appreciate you writing in. I completely get the struggle with trust. Um, I've had that. I still have it to some degree, um, but I can tell you from experience and watching people throughout the years, when the student ready, the teacher, the teacher, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear and that sponsor will come into your life. Uh, just keep seeking, my friend. Robin, and this is the last bit of commentary or the last bit of sober speak feedback, listener feedback with the music. Anyway, Robin writes in and she says, my sponsor suggested to listen to a podcast when when in the event I couldn't make it to a meeting. So my husband and I Googled podcast and I came across Sober Speak and I heard the beginning of Gary K. There he is being mentioned again, folks. And I was hooked. I live in the San Diego, California area, and my sobriety hit me hard when I got arrested at home and on New Year's Eve. Ooh, what a drag. My relationship with my husband has gotten had gotten worse and worse. Lo and behold, I ended up in jail and drunk and pissed. Next morning, I got bailed out and took the suggestion of going to AA. The second meeting I went to was amazing, was amazing and I have begun to change my life. Robin. Well, I'm wondering what happened on that first one, but I'm really glad that the second one was absolutely amazing. Thank you for writing in, Robin. So God bless all of you. Um, May God bless you and keep you until then. And we will talk to you again next week. Bye-bye now.